One of the greatest blessings that God gives us in life is the other people who surround us. Ever since God noted that it wasn't good for man to be alone, and so he gave a, a partner for him, every single person since then has been born into relationships. Right? We automatically have a, a mom or a dad. We celebrate Mom's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Most of us have brothers and sisters or grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. As we grow up, we make friends. Many eventually have lovers. And these relationships provide great joy in life. Just think of baby births and weddings. However, much of the greatest pain we feel in life also comes from relationships, which have been broken by sin. So right alongside the joys, we also have parents who abandon or abuse their kids. We have kids who rebel against their parents or reject their parents' faith. We have friends who turn their backs on us. Love interests that break our hearts. We have marriages disintegrating dysfunctional families, churches, or societies. I bet that every single person here has felt these kinds of pain at times in their relationships. I'd also bet that almost all of us tend to think the problem lies in everyone else and not ourselves. At least we tend to think that way. I'd like to challenge that notion today. I'd also like to challenge all of us to see relationships, see the relationships that we are in differently, not just as sources of joy or pain, but as opportunities, as opportunities to show love and actually holiness. Let's do this together by opening to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy 21 uh, to forewarn you, this may be the strangest passage ever preached on Mother's Day. Okay? The only person here who is happy this message is being preached today is Zach, who didn't get assigned this sermon last Sunday. <laughs> so some of the stuff we're going to be studying is rather explicit. So parents who are here, be aware there is Sunday school downstairs for your kids if you want them there instead, but that's up to you. It's a really long passage as well. That adds to the challenge. Lots of confusing stuff, controversial stuff. There's no way I'll be able to answer all of your concerns or questions today. So I'll focus on the biggest ones, and then if you have more, I'd be happy to talk with you in person later. But there's a, there's a huge danger today of missing the forest for the trees. And you know that expression of getting so caught up in the details, and some of them are ancient, some of them are confusing, instead of seeing the big picture. And so I'm going to try to keep us focused on that big picture, on the, on the principles that transcend culture and still speak to us today. We've seen as we've gone through uh, Deuteronomy's retelling of the law that it has a basic structure based on the Ten Commandments. However, as of today's passage, this structure gets much looser and less organized. Okay, so much of what we'll see has the seventh commandment in view. You shall not commit adultery. But you may also hear echoes of the fifth, sixth, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments. All right. If there is something, though, that appears to tie this whole passage together, I think it's that focus on relationships. As God's holy and set-apart people, their relationships were to be holy as well. Starting with the most foundational relationship unit, the family or the home. Here's the first point we're going to see. That holy relationships matter in our homes. Okay? Holy relationships matter in our homes. We're going to start reading in verse 10, and Moses begins here by clarifying a proper way that soldiers could take a war bride. All right, verse 10 says this. 
When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you, shall, you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Now before you say, either outcome here sounds horrible for this woman. Remember that this was not written in or for our modern feminist age. Okay, this was a different era. Men held almost all power, and hardly any women had a choice about who to marry. Chris Wright says this, We might like to live in a world without wars, and thus without prisoners of war. However, Old Testament law recognizes such realities and seeks to mitigate their worst effects by protecting the victims as far as possible. If we ask whose interest this law serves, the answer is clearly the female captive. If we ask whose power is being restricted, the answer, equally clearly, is the victorious soldier. So by, by being brought into a, a home and made family, the, this woman's future welfare was secured. She was to be given full status as a wife, not enslaved or raped as a concubine. She was to be given space and time to to mourn her past trauma, to adjust to her new present. Her dignity, her integrity were to be preserved, and she couldn't be taken advantage of if the man changed his mind over this month. So no, this does not justify men taking advantage of women, sleeping around, or rape of any kind. On the contrary, this text actually elevates the value and dignity of all people while also highlighting the seriousness of marriage. A guy couldn't just satisfy himself with a woman and then discard her. There was no such thing as casual sex. Marriage was about more than sex. As George Athos observes, that marriage is depicted as an institution for the ongoing welfare of both partners within it. Relationships, relationships are not to be trifled with, for to do so is to treat a person as a mere object. Now, no guy here is likely to face the temptation to steal a bride from a conquered country. Okay? But we will face the temptation to objectify people and to use them for selfish ends. Which, by the way, is basically the definition of what we do in porn use. We will also face temptations to take advantage of those with less power than us, including temptations to actually to sleep around or to even sexually abuse someone. But, but this is, marriage is sacred. Sex is sacred. God is holy, and all people are made in God's image. So be careful. Keep reading. Verse 15. The man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved... Then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now let's get this straight right away. This does not approve of polygamy. Okay? This speaks into the reality of ancient polygamy. Neither condemning it nor defending it. What this passage does do is it protects children from a parent's unfair favoritism, which is totally relevant. I have seen, I've personally seen favoritism tear families apart now. Okay? So parents, be aware 
that you hold massive influence over your kids. And preferred treatment of one over another can ruin them on both sides. It spoils the former and bitters the latter. So guard against it. Right? Know your tendencies. Your children definitely will. And God definitely does. And God sees. Now on to the younger generation. Verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this, is, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now in our youth-worshipping child pandering culture this sounds horrifying but no this was not talking about young children here it wasn't okay this was dealing with an exceptionally or exceptionally delinquent young adults who were legally still under their parents authority but who consistently rebelled and disregarded prolonged parental discipline Okay, this has been going on a long time. They are hardened beyond correction, despite everyone's best efforts. This was a, a tragic last resort. And scholars actually say this was likely an optional one at that. And, but notice also, parents weren't allowed to carry out this sentence themselves. It became a civil matter. So discipline was important, but the parents did not have unrestrained power. Also, we've got to take away from this, that, that such unrepentant rebellion against parents was clearly not a small thing. An insubordinate child was a threat to the whole family's well-being in that day, really the whole community's well-being. It was also a blatant disregard of the fifth commandment. In God's eyes, it says it's evil. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the first of several times today we're going to see that familiar phrase of purging evil as if rebellion was a stain on a white shirt that needed some serious bleach. So any kids still in the service, youth, young people, know you're not going to be stoned. <laughs> Unless your parents start building a rock garden, then you might need to look out. No, just, just kidding. But I warn you this. God gave you your parents. And God takes disobedience very seriously. And really, we all need to remember that, that all of us are rebellious sons and daughters of Adam. Right? But the only one who never rebelled, Jesus, died. Right? He, he died the death that we rebels deserved. So, looking at the cross, may we never take our sins lightly. While Christians are, are not under these laws anymore, this should make us examine ourselves. Are the ways that, that we are treating our family members, our parents, our children, our spouses, our, our loved ones, are the way that we're treating them holy? Are we loving our closest neighbors, those we live with, selflessly? Taking advantage of people, playing favorites, disobeying, really at the root, they're all unloving. They're ways of saying, I don't love you as much as I love myself. So, with the Spirit's help, purge the evil from the midst of your heart today. Get rid of it. Be holy in your family. The laws that are listed next may seem random to us at first glance, 
but by and large, I think they deal with relationships in the wider society. So the point is, then, that holy relationships matter in our society. Holy relationships matter also in our society. Verse 21, sorry, verse 22, so it says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the focus here has moved from the home to the land as a whole. Okay, and this law is all about not defiling the land that they were given. Verse 23, though, we saw this last a couple times ago, that this was also quoted in the New Testament in Galatians 3, which says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So, even as the law reminds us of the countless ways that we have failed God, fallen short, Scripture then tells us that God himself paid the price for us. That he took all our familial, social, other relational sins on his back. And then he, he took what would have been our curse in order to bring us eternal blessing. The only way that any of us will ever be holy, ever be transformed by God's Spirit, is if we repent of our sins, purging them, and then trust in Jesus as our Savior. If you have never done this, and you are actually, this says, under a, a real, true curse today. That you're, you're destined to fail. But you can be freed from that curse forever if you run to Jesus. Chapter 22 begins with some really practical love for neighbor laws. Look at verse 1. It says, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help, them, help him to lift them up again. As sources of food, fabric, transportation, or religious sacrifice, animals were very valuable. Okay, this was a lot more than just responding to lost pet ads. Okay? Say you found your neighbor's wallet or purse lost, lying on the, the road out in front of your house. And you can just say finders keepers, keep all whatever is in it to yourself. Or you can say, you know, it's not worth the bother trying to get it back to them and just leave it there. But those aren't loving, are they? Right, the right thing to do is to, to return it to them as much as you can. Same here with, with lost animals. And in verse 4's case of an animal falling down, this was basically the equivalent of a vehicle breakdown. Okay, so except that the vehicle was alive. But someone was in urgent need of help. And so Israelites weren't allowed to just stare at the accident as they passed by. <laughs> they were required to actually get down and help them. It's living for others. right? Caring for them, thinking of them more than you live for yourself. Verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord their God. Abomination sounds harsh. But again, we miscalculate how bad sin is to God. Scholars say this almost certainly referred to the perverted crossing of genders, either in orgiastic rites or in some form of pagan worship or both. The cross-dressing was associated with idolatry in that day. However, there's definitely a word for our culture too. 
which has severely devalued gender to the point that we can pick and choose what we are by how we feel. And really, we've gotten to that point by idolizing individuality and, and self. So it's still an idolatry. Your gender is, is one of the basic elements of your identity. It is given to you by God. And believe it or not, to undermine gender actually undermines society as a whole. George Athos says, the, the basic unit of humanity is not the anonymous individual, but the person relating to other persons. And gender is a basic consideration in relating to others because it forms one's identity. This law is not really about repressing sexual self-expression, but rather about maintaining truthfulness in personal identity so as to facilitate genuine relationship based on reality, not pretense. Now, I, I know how that can sound today. I know it can sound transphobic. But to lie about this would be what's truly unloving. Keep going. I know I'm rushing. Verse 6. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. What is this? <laughs> it seems bizarre to us. Take the eggs, not the mother? Shouldn't you take the mother, leave the cute babies behind? Well, how many of you ate eggs lately? Right? The hen that laid those eggs likely lived on to lay more. And th this law really helped preserve a food supply by not eating it all at once. And again, by preserving a source of food supply, they would love all those around them in society more than themselves. Verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. In old times, Middle Eastern homes tended to have multifunctional flat roofs. So it was like an extra room where you could eat or relax or prepare food or even take a bath. And this parapet was basically a wall or railing that went around the edges to keep people from falling off. It was a basic safety precaution which would protect guests and homeowners. And as a legal requirement, it's not unlike laws requiring smoke detectors or winter tires. Now, we may not have many rooftop parties, but we do usually try to make our homes safe for others, right? In order to, to love them by helping them avoid accidents, especially fatal ones, and the need to prevent blood guilt here shows again the need for holiness, even in social lives. You need to be holy. Verses 9 to 11 give a trio of laws that go together, but they may seem strange to us. Read them with me. It says, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, likely these rules were simple ways to display Israel's distinctiveness from the nations around them. They were daily reminders of Israel's need to not mix with paganism. These weren't inherently sinful things to do. Right? For example, the priests were required to wear mixed fabrics. So it wasn't a wrong thing. Instead of preventing sin, these laws were intended to be reminders of holiness. Okay? Same goes for the law in verse 13. Or sorry, verse uh, 12. Verse 12. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. This one's a favorite of those who say we're being hypocrites for not following the law. Right? You say you follow the Bible, 
Well, where are your four tassels? Huh? <laughs> but that's a, really, it's a gross misunderstanding of how to interpret the Bible. Jesus fulfilled this. Okay? Numbers 15 explains the purpose of the tassels was simply as a reminder for Israel. A daily reminder to remember who they were. To remember that they were to remain faithful to the Lord. So, for us, the principle would be to make sure we remember who we are as people. Right? So as to represent God best in our society. Ask yourself, do you see the way that you interact as a, as a resident of Canada, as a neighbor in your neighborhood, as an employee at your workplace, as a student at your school? You see the way that you interact there as a way to demonstrate your distinctiveness as God's people. Your holiness. Don't separate these things into a Christian life and a secular life. It's just your life. Okay? God is still with us anywhere. Everywhere. He sees it all. So are we representing him as we ought? Are we distinct from the world around us? In our culture, one of the ways we certainly should appear different is in our sex ethic. Which just so happens to be what Moses addresses next. Here's what we'll glean. Holy relationships matter in our sexuality. Holy relationships matter in our sex lives, in our sexuality. From verse 13 to 30, we're given six different scenarios, each involving sex. Look at the first one with me. It says, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city and the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. A lot of stuff here. Essentially, the, the guy marries this girl thinking she's a virgin, but then he either legitimately suspects or he maliciously accuses her of not being a virgin. If he's right, then this would be a very serious crime in Israel a form of adultery. But if he's wrong, then he's guilty of lying and slandering about her. If the guy is proven wrong, he, get a, he gets a beating, a fine, be forced to stay married, and if he, can't, if he can prove his case, however, the woman is then killed. And we recoil. How is that just to kill the girl, but only punish the guy. Well, on the one hand, remember that every criminal charge needed more than one witness. It would have been very difficult to prove this woman's guilt in this situation. Very difficult. But on the other hand, we just do not get God's perspective on premarital or casual sex. Just don't get it. We see it as casual, not serious, harmless fun, 
No strings attached. And in God's perspective, God sees sex as attaching the strings in the first place. Creates oneness. God created sex as a a beautiful gift for people within marriage, and to use it otherwise is to abuse his gift, to demean his authority, and to mistreat people. To abuse his gift, demean his authority, and mistreat people. Thus why it is described as another evil to be purged, and an outrageous thing. We also wonder, how is a forced marriage a good outcome? For, for either one of them. Well, what we, what we don't tend to consider is what a divorce would do to a woman in those days. Not like divorce today at all. Even if she was vindicated in court, if she got divorced, she would be seen as used goods. Socially shunned, very vulnerable to poverty, unable to live independently. As Chris Wright explains, the law is thus a strongly protective measure for a young wife at her most vulnerable. It not only defends her good name, but also provides for her future security against his likely desire to divorce her. The law takes the view that the security and provision of a household, even in the home of such a man, is preferable to the insecurity of a divorced woman that nobody else is likely to marry. Casual sex was not an option. Neither is casual divorce. Sex is it's enshrined within marriage, and sex was to be treated with great soberness. Also, look at verse 22. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge the evil from Israel. There's no double standard on what really here is a capital offense of adultery. Both were to die. But as we've seen, you don't have to be fully married to commit adultery. Verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The woman not crying for help tells us that this was consensual. Right? It wasn't rape. But if anyone thinks that one-night stands are harmless, that messing around sexually is okay, as long as it's consensual, they haven't read this verse. It says it's evil. What about non-consensual sex? What about rape? Glad you asked. Verse 25. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So consent is important after all in determining culpability. Right? If someone did not consent, they'd be considered innocent of the crime. Not undefiled. Like I said in, in verse 26, for, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, or sorry, earlier than that, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. The attacker could not victim blame, could not claim that he was provoked. Also, this makes it clear, it's not the sex that defiles a person, right? It's the, the motives of the heart and the actions that flow from there. Verse 28, 
If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he has violated her, he may not divorce her all his days. Now this sounds like rape. It's not entirely clear that's what it refers to. A different term is used from that in verse 25, which is clearly rape. Here it simply means to take hold of. And regardless of what it means, it, it, some kind of assault or violation is in view. George Athos explains this situation well for us. He says, to our modern sensibilities, the outcome of this scenario sounds preposterous, as it appears to commit a victim permanently into the hands of her assailant. However, this is most certainly not the intent. The perpetrator is given a stay of execution, not because he's less guilty than the perpetrator in the previous scenario, or because the unattached woman is somehow less valuable than the woman who is spoken for. Far from it. The perpetrator is allowed to live so that he provides economically for the victim for the rest of his life. This is why he has refused the right to ever divorce her. It ensures that his victim has complete access to all his resources for her own well-being for the rest of her life. It is the closest thing the ancient world had to suing someone for all they've got. And certainly, even if the threat of this penalty would have acted as a strong deterrent to rape. And so that's a, a good thing. Verse 30 gives the final sexual scenario. It says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. This refers to either plain incest or a son inheriting a stepmom after his father's death. Either way, he'd violate his father's marriage bed. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that this very scenario was playing out in the Corinthian church. And he says, and it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Paul then says, this sin should be mourned over and that person excommunicated. Then echoes Deuteronomy saying, purge the evil person from among you. Sexual immorality was still and is still an issue in the church. Now, some might hear these words today and think, this is, this is just proof that the Bible is sexually repressive. We, we say to forbid any kind of sex outside of marriage is legalistic, even harmful. Or, as long as it's consensual, it doesn't hurt anybody. But, to experience a glorious gift in the way that the giver intends is not repressive. It's not harmful. It's right. In this case, it's actually holy. To do otherwise is unholy evil. And by the way, it does hurt. It hurts each other even if you don't realize it. You sin against yourself, the Bible says. And most of all, it hurts God. Even among Christians, there is a movement to view sexual purity as something to be cast aside. Nadia Bowles-Weber, a progressively liberal pastor, writes in her book, Shameless, I'm here to tell you, unless your sexual desires are for minors or animals, or your sexual choices are hurting you or those you love, those desires are not something you need to struggle with. They're something to listen to, make decisions about, explore, perhaps have caution about, but struggle with, fight against, make enemies of, no. In Richard Lisher's words, there are two contemporary fictions. That God has quit judging sin, and that men and women find peace by learning how to feel good about themselves. Those are fictions. Okay? That God has quit judging sin, and that men and women find peace by learning to feel good about themselves. Wesley Hill responds to Bowles-Weber's claims this way. He says, true shamelessness 
gospel shamelessness comes not from making peace with your present identity and activity and declaring yourself free from shame. It comes instead from hearing a word from outside yourself and beyond your own head. God's promise of free forgiveness and new life through Christ. That's super key. Yes, at times we have failed to present sexual holiness as something desirable or superior. Yes, at times we've had plenty of failings and hypocrisies in the Christian church. But that doesn't change the truth about God's demand for holy sexuality. Whether you're in your youth and you, and you see all your friends around you hooking up, or you're single, struggling with the desire to be married, or maybe with no prospects on the horizon, or you're dating or engaged, struggling to stay pure before marriage, or you're married and you face temptations to let your eyes or your heart or your body stray. You have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to show God's worth and holiness through your sexuality. Okay, and the, you can either defile yourself or you submit to the Lord. Now, those are the two options, really. Defile yourself or submit to the Lord's will, walk by the Spirit. You can tell the world that, that while sex is good, it is not everything. Okay, it doesn't define you. And that God is really the only one who can satisfy our greatest longings. And that he's enough. He's enough. Really, it all comes down to a few key questions. Who knows best? Who's in charge? And who do you worship? We've got one final section to look at today, beginning of chapter 23. It's regarding ritual cleanness and uncleanness within the Israelite community. So the final point is, holy relationships matter in our community. So as opposed to society as a whole, this is specifically the community of God's people. Holy relationships matter in our community of believers. Verse 1 here, Moses begins talking about the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord, which referred to particular official or legal gatherings of Israel. And Moses is clear that some people were or were not allowed to take part in this assembly. Verse 1 says, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male, organs is, male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So eunuchs, verse 2, no one born of, forbidden, of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. So there were long-term consequences for immorality. Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with the bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pether of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So also there were long-term consequences for fighting God and his people. You know, God's not holding a grudge there. He's upholding his prior judgment, which was just. Interestingly, some who may have once been enemies were not to be excluded. Eventually, verse 7 says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Just a, a little glimpse of the Lord's mercy there. Now these restrictions may seem too discriminatory to us. But there was sound rationale in that day. And at the end of the day, God set the rules. And holiness in his assembly mattered. In Isaiah 56, 
there's a beautiful prophecy that seems to promise an end to these exclusions. Promising eunuchs better blessings than children. And foreigners a place in his house. Finishing with the familiar words, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Chris Wright says these promises look forward to an Israel redefined and extended by the ingathering of hitherto excluded people. There is perhaps a touch of divine humor in the fact that among the earliest notable converts in the early church was one who was both a eunuch and a foreigner and was reading Isaiah. <laughs> That's awesome. So things are, are different now for us in the church, but still, as a form of God's assembly, the church has to take holiness seriously. And finally, we come full circle. We started at war with war brides. Now we're going to bend back up in war at a war camp, discussing how soldiers, while far from home, couldn't lower their standards of purity. Look at verse 9. It says, When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. There's a blanket statement for you. No exceptions. Every evil thing. Verse 10, if any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal omission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. This isn't necessarily immorality, it's just ritual impurity. They didn't need to make a sacrifice for their sin, right? They just needed a day's quarantine and a bath. And then we get some washroom protocol. Verse 12, you shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it and you shall have a trowel and with your tools and when you sit down outside you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord, your God, <laughs> I mean, just in case you wondered if God cares about every single area of your life. <laughs> but this final verse, verse 14, really gets to the heart of everything. Okay, Because the Lord, your God, walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. We've talked a lot about what God wants from our relationships today. Where, how, but we really haven't answered the why question. Why do holy relationships matter? Why should we live in these ways? The answer here, holy relationships matter because God is holy and God is here. Why do holy relationships matter? Because God is holy and God is here among us. Right? If this was true of them, it's even truer of us. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy. God walks among us. And actually, it's even better than that. God lives inside of us. And we may not have a camp. We've got a, a gathering of people before a holy God who have been made into a holy people by the holy blood of Jesus. And therefore, we must reject that which is indecent or shameful among us. God is here to save us, to deliver us from every danger or every enemy, but will we respect his presence and his power and his holiness by doing away with our sin? He sees everything anyway. So do you fear him? Do you love him? Do you see his beauty as above all other beauties this world can offer? Will we, as Psalm 96 says, 
Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. After all, only once we get our hearts aligned properly toward God are we then able to properly protect, heal, or grow our human relationships with the right motives. And when we see God's holiness and God's presence, we tend to see something else. Our evil hearts. At a bare minimum, most of us have mistreated family members. We haven't been great neighbors to those in need. We've been sexually defiled, at least in our minds. So do you get it? Do you get it? We have all done outrageous things. We are all abominations. The the problem isn't just all out there and everyone else. We are the evil that should be purged. We can't seem to keep ourselves from every evil thing, not even close. We're unclean. We should be excluded from God's people forever. And yet... And yet Jesus paid for all those crimes. He took our curse on the cross, turning the ultimate curse into the ultimate blessing. As Hebrews 13 puts it, Christ was crucified outside the camp in order to sanctify us through his own blood. That is to make us holy. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. He came to bring us into his family, his community, and to make us holy. And if you are in Christ, that is what you are now. You're his, and you're holy. Heavenly Father, awaken our hearts to who you are, to how much you love us. Make us holy like you are, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We thank you for the cross. We need you. And we thank you that you've given yourself for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.